The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Our sermon text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verse 18b through verse 26. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 18b. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Isn't it a joy to see the baptisms this morning and to hear those testimonies? It's good to be gathered together as the people of God. If you're a visitor here, maybe perhaps witnessing the baptism of a friend. We're glad you're here this morning, and we're continuing in our series in Philippians. So why don't you join me as I pray and ask the Lord for help. Father in heaven, we want to see more of your glory. We want to see more of your beauty. We want to see more of your majesty. So open our eyes, cause our eyes to see afresh what you want us to see in your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are parents here this morning, how many of you remember the very first time you held your firstborn? Show of hands. It was an amazing experience, wasn't it? Holding this child, this baby that was not there five minutes earlier, and all of a sudden you're looking at this tiny little being that is breathing and crying and has a soul that will live forever. It's a stunning experience. Your heart is just full of awe and wonder. But that feeling eventually fades. After changing what feels like the millionth diaper and being totally sleep deprived, you want this little miracle to just go to bed. (laughs) Extraordinary things, when they become so familiar, eventually become common. The, the, The wonder and the awe of those extraordinary things eventually fades. I remember in college, I lived in San Diego, and my favorite view was from these, what they called the sunset cliffs in La Jolla that overlooked the Pacific Ocean, and when the sun was setting, there was nothing better than that view. It it was a stunning, stunning view, the the ocean breeze in your face, and, and the ocean that just seems to go limitless from there. But after living there for several years, 
I eventually took that view and year-round 70-degree weather and a 15-minute drive to the beach all for granted. Just like everyone else, I just started complaining about a little bit of rain or the traffic or whatever else. What once evoked awe and wonder in my heart no longer does. And in our passage this morning, we have what is perhaps the most profound declaration of confidence in Christ. Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And yet, I worry that that passage has become so familiar to us. It's become so overused that it's become even cliche and emptied of its meaning. My guess is that many of us have this verse memorized, but do we have this verse in our hearts and minds such that it convicts us, it challenges us to be more like Jesus, to indeed let our life be all about Christ. So my goal this morning is to help us understand this verse within its context of the letter so that it might infuse our hearts with fresh hope. Like taking a a copper cup or a copper pot that is dulled and oxidized over years and years of age and you take a scouring pad and a little bit of barkeeper's friend and then you just scour it and then all of a sudden it's gleaming and shining like brand new copper once again. That's what we want to do with Philippians 1.21 this morning. Shine it and scour it so that we would see the beauty and the majesty of Christ here in this passage this morning. So just by a little bit way of review last week, We saw that Paul's concern in imprisonment was whether or not the gospel advanced. That was the only thing that he cared about. Even if people were preaching in order to spite him, he said, as long as Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And now Paul turns to rejoice in his own situation. So what's Paul's situation? Well, He's chained to a soldier. He's in a Roman prison. He's going to stand trial, and it's very likely that he might even be executed. There's the constant threat of disease and infection and starvation and even death. And the Philippians are rightly concerned about Paul. They're sad. They're thinking, this is shameful for Paul to be in prison. He shouldn't be in prison. And it would be even more shameful if Paul died in prison. Uh, We're discouraged about Paul's situation. And it's in this context that Paul writes to reassure the Philippians that he's going to be okay. And so what does Paul tell them? Paul reveals his central conviction that enables him to rejoice with confidence no matter what happens to him. Paul is writing so that they would see his one central conviction— that allows him to rejoice no matter what happens to him physically. So Paul is 100% confident that his imprisonment will result in the honor of Jesus. And so the question for us this morning is, what is that one central conviction that enables Paul to rejoice? What's Paul's central conviction that allows him to rejoice no matter what? 
Well, before we answer that question, let me just share how I think this whole passage is organized. If you look at the whole passage in your Bible from 18 all the way to 26, I think it breaks down like this. Verses 18 to 20 highlight Paul's confidence of his eventual deliverance. You see that at the end of verse 19? I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul's really confident that this is going to turn out for his deliverance. And and this is rooted and grounded in verse 21. In verse 21, we see this for. This is communicating to us that this is a ground or a reason. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then verses 22 to 26, everything after this flows out of that central thought in verse 21. It's an inference, if you will. It's the logical conclusion of verse 21. So verse 21 sits at the spiritual center of our passage. So we're going to see three things in this passage this morning. We're going to see Paul's confidence, Paul's conviction, and then Paul's certainty. Paul's confidence, conviction, and then his certainty. So look with me at his confidence of his deliverance in verses 18 to 20. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So, Paul is continuing his theme of rejoicing. Even if Christ is being preached by those who want to spite me, I rejoice. And now he says, I rejoice whether I live or die, even with the uncertain future before him. Now, at first glance, it seems like Paul's rejoicing in the beginning of verse 18 there, yes, I will rejoice, is because he thinks he'll get out of jail. You see that in verse 19? Because this will turn out for my deliverance. But that is not what Paul is saying, because in the immediately following verse, in verse 20, he says that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is saying, I might live and I might die, but my confidence is in my deliverance. So what does Paul mean when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance if he might live or die. It doesn't mean that he's definitely getting out of jail. So the the Greek word for deliverance here is often translated as salvation or vindication. It's the same word that you see in Philippians 1.28 that's translated salvation. It's the same word in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the second thing we want to notice is that Paul is likely echoing the language of Job in the Old Testament. Now, the wording is identical to the Greek translation of Job chapter 13, verse 16, which reads like this. This will be my salvation. And it's Job who speaks these words after his three friends who sat with him after everything in his life fell apart. And all of his friends are saying, Job. It's because you have secret sin that you haven't repented of that all of this bad stuff is happening to you. And Job says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that I will be vindicated, that I'll be proven right. And so Paul is drawing upon Job's words into his own situation to say, I too am like Job. I'm a righteous sufferer. I'm not in jail because of my sin or because I did something wrong or as a punishment from God which is probably what others were saying about Paul. Remember when some were seeking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment? 
Uh, They were seeking to kind of build their own platforms as Paul was in prison. What were they probably saying? Look look how God has sovereignly put Paul in jail. It's from God's design. He must be punishing him for doing something wrong. He must have some secret sin that God is punishing him for. And, And Paul says, no, no, no. I am confident that I will be vindicated by God just like Job was vindicated by God. So Paul's use of this word deliverance here is not referring to getting out of prison. Instead, he's confident of spiritual deliverance or ultimate salvation, regardless of whether or not he gets out of jail, which is why he says whether by life or by death in verse 20. Remember how Paul believes that suffering is not shameful, but suffering is participation with Jesus. And so suffering is a gift of God, not a curse that allows Paul to be confident that God is at work in his life for good. This is a key thing for Christians to recognize. Our suffering isn't necessarily because God is trying to punish us, but he's using it in our life so that we would trust him more and so that he would get glory so that he could show himself strong. Now, why does Paul mention through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? I think very simply, Paul is asking for the Philippians to renew their partnership with him in the gospel. He says, pray for me that the Spirit might help me so that I would proclaim Christ without fear in the midst of being in prison, that I would defend the gospel. Paul actually says very similarly elsewhere. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul is writing to the church and he says, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, for the gospel, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So again, Paul's in prison. He's saying, pray for me so that I would be bold to speak up in the midst of prison. So what Paul wants is the Spirit's enablement so that when he's on trial, he's bold to speak for Jesus and that Jesus' words would be true. When Jesus says, do not be anxious about what you should say, or to how to defend yourself when you're brought before synagogues and authorities and leaders. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So, Paul is saying, pray for me to not be ashamed of the gospel, but instead that I would preach Christ in prison. That Christ would be honored. Now, the phrase, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, refers both to the Holy Spirit that is sent by Jesus, but it's also referring to the very Spirit of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit, that dwells within believers. And so this is how we understand passages like Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but who lives within me. Christ lives within me. Well, how does Christ live within me if he's seated at the throne of God? Well, by his spirit, the very spirit of Jesus Christ lives within us. So Paul's confidence isn't rooted in himself or because of how wise he is, but his confidence is rooted in the very spirit that dwells within him. And that deliverance, in verse 20 he says, is that his eager expectation and hope 
that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul states it both negatively and then positively. First, negatively, he says that I will not at all be ashamed. So he's saying, I I don't anticipate, I don't expect, I don't plan to bring shame upon the name of Christ by failing to speak up in that moment. My imprisonment is to serve to actually serve the gospel, to testify to the gospel, so that I might stand as a defense of the gospel. But then he states it positively. See that in the second half? He says, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul anticipates spirit-endowed courage to stand firm as a witness of Jesus. Paul's not mainly concerned about getting out of prison. He's mainly concerned about him being bold and standing firm to speak and to defend and to preach Christ in the midst of prison. I think it's really important to see Paul's primary concern is glorifying Christ. His hope is not in the right verdict, but his hope is in glorifying Jesus. Sometimes I'll pray with people and you usually hear about some really significant diagnosis and they say, I know that God's going to heal me. And that always makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I don't know God's going to heal you. He may. And, and yet we, we want to have faith and we want to pray. I just don't think we should speak that way because our ultimate hope and confidence is not necessarily in the healing But our ultimate hope and confidence is that God would be glorified as we walk through that trial. And so we can be 100% confident that God is going to use whatever suffering that comes into our life for his glory. So that we would see more of him. So that we would trust him more. So that we would hold on to Jesus more. And that others would hear of the name of Christ through us. But, But... We can be hopeful and we can pray for God's healing, but I think our confidence ought to be not in the healing, but to glorify Jesus. And that's what we see here in Paul. Paul's confidence is in God's vindication. Now, this leads to a central conviction in verse 21. Look with me at verse 21. Our second point is his conviction in life and in death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. This statement is at the very center of the passage and the reason for Paul's rejoicing and confidence. Everything is grounded and rooted in this truth. The English translations fail to capture the explosiveness of how Paul's written this. There is no verb there. So it's just to live, Christ, to die, gain. These words capture and reflect Paul's singular conviction and heartbeat here. It's the foundation of his life. So every cell in Paul's body is infused with this truth. Every aspect of his life is permeated by this reality. Later on in chapter 3, he says, everything I once thought was gain, everything I once put my hope in, everything I once thought was really important and high and lifted up in my life, I now count as loss in comparison to knowing Christ. 
So Christ is gain. So all of Paul's life revolves around Jesus. Just think with me for a moment. Paul preached. Why? To proclaim Christ. Paul taught in synagogues, Jewish synagogues. Why? So that fellow Jews would know their Messiah, Jesus. Paul's past as a Pharisee that persecuted Christ's church is a backdrop for the sparkling diamond of Christ in his life. Paul's imprisonment is to show that Jesus is better. Paul's beatings and lashes with the whip reveal that Christ is worth it. Paul's straining forward in the mission is to obtain the very prize of Christ. Paul's church planting is to bring others into the red-hot worship of Jesus, the Messiah. Paul prays for others to be pure and blameless. Why? For the day of Christ, so they would be Christ's beautiful, spotless bride. Paul eats so that he would have strength to serve. Paul sleeps so that Christ will be exalted in his waking hours. To live is Christ for Paul. There is not a cell or atom or molecule in all of Paul's life where he doesn't cry out. It's for Christ and through Christ and in Christ. Paul's statement here captures the very meaning and goal of his life. And so the first half of the statement informs the latter half. To live is Christ informs then dying is gain. If Jesus is the goal of life, then dying is just another opportunity to testify and to bring glory to Jesus. Dying is gain because it brings us to be with Jesus forever. In death, we receive our final reward. So the word gain here, it means profitable. So Paul is saying it's better than the other things. It's better than living. It's better than graduating or going to college or getting a degree or going to graduate school or getting married or having babies or getting a promotion or growing your net worth or buying a new car or buying a house or marrying off your children or having grandbabies or cashing in on that retirement account or taking that long-awaited dream vacation. Paul is saying it's better than anything else that life can offer me. To die is gain because we get Jesus. So imagine the thinking, the thought process of the soldiers. What, what a terrible prisoner Paul would be. The, the, the prisoners, you know, the leaders of the Roman guards are thinking, okay, let's kill Paul. And then another soldier says, no, 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 that's only going to give him what he wants. And they say, okay, let's torture him instead. No, 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 that's actually going to just authenticate his message and more people are going to believe. Okay, let's let him loose then. No, that's going to allow him to preach Christ unhindered. Okay, let's just keep him in prison. No, he's already converted several of our guards and many more are intrigued. (laughs) Paul is unstoppable. He's unfazed by any threats of physical harm. And Jesus taught his disciples that they don't need to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And Paul is walking around and he's saying, I'm living all for Christ. There's no lose in this situation. If you keep me here, I have a platform all the way to Rome to preach Jesus. And that's my only ambition. And if you kill me, hundreds of others will pick up the task and I get to be with Jesus forever. 
all anyone can do is kill you, which puts you in the fast-track carpool lane to heaven. The foundational conviction that Paul has here in Philippians 1 and 21 has been a balm of comfort and a buttress of truth for martyrs throughout the ages, has it not? There have been hundreds and thousands and perhaps even millions of Christians who have looked to Paul's words here and have said, yes, to live Christ, to die, gain, and then they die and they gain the world. And it's a truth, not just for martyrs, but it's a truth for all of us this morning, is it not? It's a truth for normal everyday Christians who are not facing execution and imprisonment because guess what? We're all going to die. And we get gain. So we've seen Paul's confidence that's rooted in this central conviction and now we come to Paul's certainty of the future. Look with me at verses 22 to 26. Actually, we'll read 22 and 23 first. He says, If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul is torn between what he considers two really good options. If I stay, it means fruitful labor. That means I get to continue to minister and help people trust in Jesus. And if I die then I go to be with the Lord. Execution or release, both are attractive options in Paul's mind. He says he's hard-pressed between the two. He's hemmed in on both sides. He's being torn. Now, when Paul says, if I'm to live in the flesh, he doesn't mean the flesh as in the sinful flesh. Like in Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What he is saying is that he's just referring to his physical life. If I continue to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor. And so he doesn't have a death wish, but he's confident that living would lead to more gospel ministry and dying would indeed be better. Now, in verses 24 to 26, Paul all of a sudden goes from really uncertain about what he's going to do to all of a sudden very certain about what he's going to do. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul's torn, but then now he reveals that his concern for the Philippians takes precedent. Why? Why why does Paul all of a sudden go from, "Ah, I don't know which I'm going to choose, to I know exactly what I'm going to choose? I think it's because it's more necessary on account of the Philippians. So Paul plans to stick around so that he can begin to model the very teaching he's going to bring in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he says, have the mind of Christ. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. But he says what? He says in chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So let none of you do anything from selfishness. Let none of you make your decisions when it's just all about me, about what do I want to do? What do I like? What, 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 What do I want? Paul says, that's not a great way of making decisions. He says, think about others. 
model what Christ did. Christ didn't think about what would be most comfortable for him. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for the good of others. And every Christian is to think in that same way. You don't live for yourself. You don't exist just so that you can keep your nose clean for 80 years and then die. We exist for the benefit of others, brothers and sisters. So out of Paul's love and concern for the Philippians here, he's constrained to continue to preach the gospel and to strengthen the churches. To remain meant fruitful ministry. To advance the progress and joy of the faith of the Philippians. So when when Paul says, it's more necessary on your account, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. He doesn't, he's not saying, I know exactly that I'm getting out of jail and that I'm going to come back and visit you and to help you. But he does have the confidence, if I get out, I know that that's going to mean more fruitful labor on your behalf because I love you. Because my goal is not to take the easiest road, but my, my goal is to be useful helpful to advance your faith. So the idea is that Paul anticipates opportunity to advance the Philippians' joy and progress in the faith. And this would result in glorying, glorying in Christ Jesus. You see that in verse 26? So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. That's an unusual phrase. And captures the idea of boasting or taking pride in. So what does it mean to boast in Jesus or to take pride in Jesus? Well, we see that very similar word in Philippians 3.3. And he says there, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's contrasting glorying in Christ Jesus and putting confidence in the flesh. And so the idea here is we can either boast in our physical, whatever it may be, or we can boast in Jesus. And in the context of Philippians 3, it was circumcision. It was pointing back to saying, look, I have the sign of, of the people of God. That is what gets me in. And Paul's saying, we don't boast in that. We boast in Jesus. Our confidence is not in any physical characteristic, but that we boast in Christ. And I think this has a word for us even this morning. Because I know that some of us, especially for our children sometimes, we think, oh, but Johnny was baptized when he was 7 or 10 or 17. And so even though he's walked away from Jesus now, I'm looking back to his baptism. You know, I have that little certificate that, you know, Pastor, what's his face signed, right? We don't put our confidence in anything according to the flesh. Like John said this morning, it's a reflection. It's a sign of the reality that has taken place. And that reality is to continue so that we would trust and cleave to Christ. We want to boast in Jesus, glory in Christ Jesus, not boast in the flesh. So Paul reports that his chains and his imprisonment is leading to gospel advance so that Christ will be honored both in his life and his death. And Paul is trying to get the Philippians to understand, don't be sad or ashamed because I am not sad or ashamed here in jail. 
I know that it's going to result in God getting glory. And if I get out, it's just going to mean more fruitful labor. And if I die, I'm with Jesus. Don't worry about me. God's at work even in the most dire of situations and circumstances. So Paul's central conviction enables him to rejoice with confidence no matter what happens to his body. To live. Christ. To die. Gain. And the reason dying is gain is because Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see this in chapter 2, verse 8. And in Christ, all those who have died with Jesus will rise with him to new life. This is what baptism is. We die with Christ. We're buried with him in his death. And we rise with him in his new life. And we will certainly be glorified with Jesus as well. And this is why Paul says to die is gain. Dying is gain because we're going to be made perfect like Jesus. Dying is gain because there will be no more suffering and pain, no more tears. Dying is gain because we will finally be at home with the Lord. Dying is gain because we will be with Christ forever, which is far, far better. We were praying earlier in the prayer room, and uh, an older saint said, I thank you for the aging process, because it has worked in me a greater longing to be with Christ. That's so wise and mature of that saint to say. When you're young, you're invincible. And when you're old, oh, I can't wait to be with Jesus. Dying is gain because in Christ, death becomes a doorway to eternal joy and bliss. How, how do you picture death? If you're kind of into popular culture, you think of him as a man wearing a big black robe with a big hood on and then a big staff with a big blade at the end, right? Kind of the grim reaper. That's the image that many have of death when he comes knocking on your door. But for believers, death now wears khakis and a button-down shirt and holds the door for believers to pass on into eternity. There's no more fear. There's no more intimidation. Fear, death is not a fearsome executioner waiting for us, but rather he's a servant of the Most High God that ushers us into glory. That's why... Paul can write, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And yet this is only true of those who are in Christ. And I know that in a group this size, there are those who are not trusting in Christ this morning. And so death is not gain for you. In fact, death is even more terrible than could be imagined. Death is being separated from God forever. It's eternal punishment where the fire never ends. And so our desire is that as you consider the inevitability of death, that you would put your hope in Christ. Studies have shown one out of one people die. Everyone dies. And so the question is not when or if, it's, what am I trusting in? Where will I look? Where is my hope in this life and in the next? Now, as we seek to apply this passage of this morning, I want to draw out four applications for us. 
The first is to pray for fellow believers who are standing trial or imprisoned for their faith. Pray. Pray for fellow believers. Right now, we know that there are Christians around the world who are being held captive for Christ. Perhaps even some of our global partners at times. And as we partner in the advance of the gospel, pray for Christians held captive, not just to get out, though we want that, but pray that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in their bodies, whether by life or by death. There are some people who will never hear the preaching of the gospel unless someone in prison is preaching to them and authenticates that message with their very own scars and beatings so that some jailer would say, I can't believe they said they love me after I just beat them to a bloody pulp. And we, we, we've heard those stories in China and Romania and, and many other places where prisoners are beaten to an inch of their life and then people get saved. So as we partner with many others in the gospel, pray for fellow believers that this would be true of them, not just that they'd get out, but that Christ would be honored in life and in death. Our second application. Let's seek to honor God in our bodies. Though we are not imprisoned or most of us are not on trial or facing execution, we too are called to honor Christ in our bodies regardless of our physical circumstances. And so we get to be, we get to be witnesses of Jesus in cancer and in miscarriage and in the ER and in the ICU. We want to see those things as opportunities to authenticate the truthfulness of the gospel and for open doors to stand firm and to be courageous in speaking about Jesus. There will be some who will not hear outside of some of us speaking as we lay on our deathbeds. More broadly, are we seeking to honor Christ in our bodies, in our eating, exercise, sexuality, and sleep? Are we living to honor Christ so that when the time comes to honor Christ in death, just means a continuation of how we've been living. Third application. This passage challenges us to examine whether it's true for us that to live is Christ. Is that true? There's a country song that one of the pastors pointed out to me called Live Like You Were Dying. That says if you knew you were going to die, then you'd go skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and bull riding and whatever else is on your bucket list. Yet for Christians, for those whose lives are wrapped up in Jesus and making much of Christ, do we live with the foundational conviction that to live is Christ and to die is gain? So sometimes a diagnostic question can help us put these things in perspective. If you found out that you have one year to live right now, what would you do differently? If you found out you had one year to live, what would you do differently? What changes would you make? It's a question that forces us to think about how we use our limited time and life right now. Is it true that to live is Christ 
If not, let's seek to honor Christ in life. Are there priorities you need to reconsider or pursuits you need to abandon or take up in order to glorify Christ in and through our lives? And one of the pastors mentioned this, and I think it's helpful to mention. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy great company and good meals and fun games and camping trips and sweet friendships. But are those things helping us see Jesus more clearly, delight in him more fully, and glorify him in our lives? Do we see the gifts of the giver and ultimately give glory to the giver of the gifts? Or do we worship those gifts themselves? And are those things pulling us away from Jesus? We are to enjoy the gift and give glory to the giver and not worship the gifts. Fourth application and final. Are we living to advance others' joy in faith? Are we living so that others would progress in their faith? Are we seeking to share Christ Are we seeking to be disciple-making disciples that proclaim Christ? Here's a question for you. Are there going to be other people in heaven who say, Oh, I am glorying in Christ Jesus. I am boasting in Christ. I am taking pride in Jesus because you came to me. Because you ministered to me. Because you spoke that word in season. Because you helped me when I was in small group. Because you taught my Sunday school class. Because you shared the gospel with me. Are there going to be others who will glory in Christ Jesus because of our coming to them again? Oh, let's be that type of people, brothers and sisters. May our central conviction be to live Christ, to die, gain. And whatever we do in the meantime, Let's rejoice in gospel advance, living with fearlessness and confidence no matter the circumstances so that Christ would be honored in our bodies by life and by death. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would cause this truth to sink deep into our hearts so that it would bear the fruit of righteousness and it would bear the fruit of living for Jesus alone. And then that we would all die well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.